Welcome back to the Pucks of a Feather podcast. I'm joined this time, not by Patrick or Jason, but by fellow writer at Pucks of a Feather, Jonathan Maxfield. How are you doing? Good, good. How's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. We're uh, recording this now on Monday night because we had some technical difficulties on Sunday night, but we're still hopefully getting this out to you either Tuesday morning or Monday night. But we're going to take a look back now at uh, the week that has been Ducks hockey, and uh, it hasn't been a wonderful time in Ducks land, I guess you could say, over the last <laughs> little bit. It's uh, I looked this morning, six wins in the Ducks' last 31 games, the most recent obviously coming last night against the Colorado Avalanche, but they played two games prior to this against Chicago, which they lost in, in the final 16 seconds of the game, and a game against Vegas where they actually played one of their better games over the last little span here, but they, again, typical of the Anaheim Ducks this year, they can't score. Yeah, exactly. Looking back at all three games, they're really putting on pressure on just about everyone. Um, for the most part, they're keeping the shots out to the perimeter, not really letting too many net front shots get put through. And it's really showing um, getting Gibson back has been a big help. Um, you, you, you're seeing more than anything just the offensive anemicness of the Stucks team um, not able to put any pucks behind the goalies that's their biggest issue they're getting lots of shots now more shots than any time recently but they just can't put them in yeah it, it's almost like the, the defense has gotten better it's not perfect but it's gotten better and then obviously John Gibson comes back it helps out but we're not seeing those games anymore where the Ducks are not getting any shots for the first you know 10 minutes of the game or they're finishing where the other team is just blowing them out like 40 to 25 in shots that seems to have gone away but the the underlying issue that's always been here this year is, is like what you mentioned the Ducks offense is just anemic they they can't put the puck in the back of the net because they'll have games like they did against Vegas where they played well and if you look at expected goals and you just look at the, the overall stats of that game they probably should have won that game but coupled with Marc-Andre Fleury having a good game and the fact that the Ducks just can't finish on their chances and Corey Perry has an open net hits the post all, <laughs> all of those things combined <laughs> that's just been a typical for the Ducks this year they just can't score and you know that doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon but at least you know a lot of people want them to tank at least if they're losing games it's not boring to watch them anymore they're at least competing in games right yeah I'm I'm firmly on team tank myself I'm really looking forward to that high draft pick but it's definitely a lot more fun to see this Ducks team where I mean just looking at those last three games specifically there wasn't a single one where I felt like we were truly outmatched for the most of the game um, at least for there was certain chunks where we kind of looked down specifically like the second period uh, against Vegas they really stepped it up the last half of that period but um, other than that we've been really competitive and I mean for the most part I'd say we outplayed most of the teams this last week yeah I mean I think it, they definitely marginally outplayed Chicago and that was a little bit unfortunate that uh, Hampus Lindholm just had a, a bad I guess you could say final period of that game where he was kind of at fault for both of those goals uh, but they probably should have beat Chicago and then in Vegas it, it was one of those games that they just happen occasionally yeah. where you probably should have won but you end up losing and it doesn't look close on the score sheet it's essentially two nothing because it was an empty netter anyway MT, yeah but still, and then in Colorado, they were a little bit better than Colorado on the night. If you look at expected goals, it was pretty close to even the game. Obviously, they were saying it was about 2-2, should have gone to overtime. But the Ducks pulled it out and, and kind of on the shoulders of John Gibson's at times. But they actually played a solid game. And if the Ducks are going to win right now, they're going to win 2-1 or 1-0 or 3-2. They're, they're not going to really blow out a team because you look at Chicago, the team they put up three goals on. Well, that team is bottom of the league in goals against. So that that's going to happen when you're playing one of those teams. Yeah, exactly. What, basically, the way that I look at it is what we're seeing right near now this last three games has been what the teams that we were playing early in the season were seeing whenever we had John Gibson standing on his head, where they had every chance and they should have won every single game in regulation even, but they just couldn't beat Gibson enough to the point where they'd get points. And now we're getting the opposite side of that, where we're playing well, we should be getting some goals, and we're just not able to put them in. So, Yeah, and it seems the only guy who's been scoring lately is Jakob Silverberg. He almost had both yesterday, but it was Matt Calvert who ended up tipping Cam Fowler's shot into the net. But he was right in that vicinity. And he's a recipient of a new five-year extension, which we did talk about on the last show. It's five years and, and $5.25 million average annual value. Takes him till he's about 33 when the deal expires. The only change is that instead of a 10-team no-trade clause, it was a 12-team no-trade clause. And this is the first contract, I think, 
in a while that has had people split, I guess you could say. Most people generally either the, the last few deals have really liked them, like Adam Henrique's deal. People really liked it when it was signed. It's kind of souring a bit because the Ducks are bad. And then, you know, the BX extension, the Kessler extension, a lot of people were on the opposite side of that. They didn't like it. This one, I think people are split. There's a lot of people who think the Ducks can be competitive in the next couple of years and that this will pay off. And there's a lot of people who are on Team Tank and think this team is going to take at least three or four years to be competitive. And signing Silverberg is really money wasted if you're not going to be competing. Yeah, I, I definitely understand both sides of it. This one's definitely weird in the way that people are split because most of the time you see it is, oh, that player's not worth that amount of money or that player's worth more and we're getting a great deal on him. Silverberg, I'm not really seeing too many people saying that he doesn't deserve the contract he got. It's more so that the Ducks shouldn't be the ones paying it, which I completely understand. If you don't think we're going to be competitive, it doesn't really make sense to sign somebody who's going to be in their mid-30s when the contract ends, especially when you already have Getzloff, Perry, Kessler, and Henrique all signed for the next three years. So it, uh, I definitely understand both viewpoints. I don't have an issue with the contract specifically. I was under the banner of the people who were kind of hoping that we trade him, more so because I wanted to get some assets than I didn't like Silverberg. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing behind it is it's just kind of poor asset management, if anything, in that you could have gotten probably a first-round pick when you look at what deals were taking place at the deadline or at least a prospect or something in return. When you look at maybe like what a guy like Ryan Dezingle got who has the same type of production to Silverberg, and then Silverberg also provides his the defensive aspect to his game, which means he probably could have got more. And I believe Dezingle got Anthony Duclair in two second-round picks, which for the Ducks right now would have been bad if they were both – if you know if it was the same team, it would have been another second round pick in this year, which would have been four in the first two rounds, and then another second round pick next year. So, you know, it it doesn't make sense on that end. But I, I do agree. I mean, Silverberg probably could have got more in the open market. I, I feel like he probably could have got a little bit closer to six million if he went and waited till free agency because teams would have been desperate. But took a small hometown discount to stay, and obviously the Ducks wanted him. So I have I have no issues with the player. But yeah, I, I think on the asset management side, it's it's like if you're clearly going to try and get picks this year by trading Brandon Montour and not being a good team and aiming for a top five pick it kind of counteracts that point by going back and signing a guy at 28 who's going to be here till he's 33 and you know Bob Murray saying retool well I now question how long he thinks that retool is actually going to take because I don't think it's going to be one or two years until the Ducks are good I think it's more three four or five yeah, that, that'd be my guess as well. It's really going to depend what kind of magic he pulls this summer. Um, if he can make some big trades and get some offense in here quick, if he can, you know, if he has a plan like he says he does, then we've seen teams go from bottom to top really quick. There's also teams that just kind of linger in limbo, and I'm hoping that's not the case. But yeah, the Silverberg contract itself, I mean, if you look at the most comparable contracts to him, the ones that were signed over a year ago, back now back in February of uh, 2018, Michael Backlund and Patrick Hornquist, both are older than him by a year as when they signed their contract, and they both got fairly similar deals. Uh, Backlund got 5.35 for six years, and he was 29, and Hornquist got five uh, years at 5.3, and he was 31. So, I mean, he's definitely got a market value contract, and those were both re-signings. They weren't open market. So I definitely feel he the contract we signed him to isn't a bad contract in any stretch. It's just a matter of what the plan is for the future, and I'm going to hold out judgment on this one until we kind of see what Murray has up his sleeve in the summer. Yeah, and it's funny what ended up causing so much drama between fans on social media was not the the, the term, not the money. It was the, the twelve team no trade clause, which seemed to got a lot of people up in arms because I think when you hear no trade clause, and I think with a lot of speculation around the expansion draft, people tend to forget that no trade clauses don't have to be protected. And right. you know, a twelve team no trade clause means Silverberg picks twelve teams he doesn't want to go to, and then he has eighteen teams the Ducks can still trade him to. So at that point, you almost put it in there for, for a player for just stability, and the Ducks probably yeah. got a lower average annual value because they added that in there. So if he you know if there's twelve teams he doesn't want to go to, the Ducks still have plenty of options, more than half the league to go out right. and trade him to. And the big thing, like I mentioned, is he doesn't have to be protected in the expansion draft. The Ducks going into the Seattle expansion draft actually have no players that they have to protect. So with, with Getzlaff and Perry's contracts expiring, them being unrestricted free agents, and Ryan Kessler moving into the last year of his deal where his no-move clause, I believe it switches to a modified no-trade clause. So Correct. It's a perfect position for the Ducks. I mean, it still is a weird signing, but to, to get upset over the no-trade clause at this point, I mean... It doesn't really matter. That's not going to hurt the Ducks. It might be a little bit more difficult to trade Silverberg, but I don't see them trading him 
two or three years into this deal. If anything, he would be a guy who maybe gets picked at the expansion draft. Right. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at it, I mean, like you said, over half the league can choose from regardless of if he doesn't want to go to a rebuilder or if he doesn't want to go to a for whatever reason, he doesn't want to go to a playoff team. You can't knock all of them out in his list. So you're going to have at least one or two teams from either rebuilding or playoff bound teams that cannot be on that list. So you're definitely not going to be strapped the way that, say, Vancouver was with Ryan Kessler, where they were basically forced to trade him to the Ducks. So it's it's definitely something where I don't understand the the logic behind being upset about the no trade clause unless you're looking at it from like you said confusing it that you have to protect those players when that's not the case. I think it's a, a bit of flashbacks from people too, and, and the, some of the deals you gave to guys that had no move clauses in it, like Ryan Kessler, like Kevin Bieksa, and that yeah. ended up hurting the Ducks in the past. And you just now you hear no trade clause, and that's so common. And any time a Ducks player signs a contract, you just really <laughs> think that bad things are going to happen because he signed it. But yeah, the, I mean, the, the big thing here is it wasn't a no, no move clause because it could have gone south. If he had been given a no move clause, that could have been really hard for the Ducks expansion draft when guys like Max Jones and Sam Steele, Troy Terry and Isaac Lindstrom are all going to be exposed and depending on what type of players they are at that time those could be appealing options to Seattle and if you were strapped into having to protect Jakob Silverberg at 30-31 that that would be a tough position to be in and, and you know a losing Shea Theodore then you'd be losing one of these young forwards because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And not only just that, you also have to look at the defensive side of things. You can only protect three defenders. Right now, the Ducks have three big defenders. You got Fowler, Lindholm, and Manson. If Gooley continues to play well, he could be one of those guys who could be a core piece of this team, and you can't protect him either. So more than anything, you might be lightening the load of what you have to do to kind of sway Seattle to take your the player you want. If you get to the point where it's like, hey, you can have Silverberg, we'll throw in you know, this mid-round pick or this second-round pick, and you just take this that, as opposed to taking one of our key pieces that we don't really have the room to protect, it's definitely something where I think that's beneficial. And um, personally, I don't think long-term that Silverberg and Henrik are both going to be part of this team um, for the duration of their deals. I think one of them is going to either be Seattle or trade-bound. Um, especially since Henrique before July 1st can be traded without any before his no trade kicks in. So you could be seeing one of them move sooner than later. Like I said, I'm just holding out reserving my judgment here because Murray says he has a plan. So I'll give him this shot and see what he can do with it. Yeah, I, I mean, likely one of them does go to Seattle in the expansion draft because Henrik and Silverberg would be two guys that one of them would be exposed because you have to assume the Ducks are going to protect Getzlaff. He's likely going to still be around. Uh, Andre Cash and Ricard Raquel would be easy picks to protect at that point. And then you've got the four rookies, Adam Henrik, Corey Perry, if you're deciding to go that route with him or you just leave him exposed, and then Jakob Silverberg. So one of them is going to be left open. And then, yeah, like you said, I don't see them both being here long term. One of them probably gets traded. There, there's a possibility that I still think that Adam Henrik could be traded in, in the draft. I, I think that's a possibility. Jakob Silverberg, not anymore, just signed a contract extension. But I think the Ducks are going to get a look at what they have in Sam Steele for the rest of the year if they can. I know he's skating with the Ducks as of today. But that's a real possibility. If he takes a step forward next year, he could be better than Adam Henrique. And at that point, you don't really need him there. And the same goes for Isaac Lindstrom. You know, they might not do it at the draft, but they, they definitely need to see what they have in those two before moving. I mean, if he becomes expendable, he's the, the easiest guy to move out there because the other guys are both on entry-level contracts and you don't need $5 million plus in a guy who isn't bet your, you know, is your fourth best center on the team. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's definitely just on name value alone, I don't think there'll be a shortage or suitors for Henrique if they do decide to go that route. I mean, just by the kind words that New Jersey had for him, I can't imagine they'd be rough to send him back. I mean, they they've got a kind of a they don't really have any elite centers, so they're kind of running centers by committee and somebody like Henrique who can move up and down the lineup is definitely a key there. Yeah, I mean, any team I think would be willing to go for him because as bad as the Ducks have been on offense this year, he's been right around what he normally is in a season where he's a 20-goal guy close to it and a 40-50 point guy. That's what he's going to finish around this year. So, yep. again, as bad as the Ducks has been, he's been consistent, and that's what teams like to see when, especially if you got to convince a team to bring in a guy that's over $5.5 million, you got to hope that he still has some consistency and can be good when the rest of the team is bad. But you, know, you look at this Ducks offense, we've already talked about how bad it's been this year but it's verging on historically bad in franchise history. 
the franchise low in goals in a season is 175 back in 2001-2002. The Ducks are currently at 144, so they would need 31 in 16 games to avoid it, which is less than two goals per game, which you would say, normally that's probably easy to avoid. (laughs) But the Ducks are barely scoring above two goals per game this year. I think it's 2.14 last time I checked. And they've been shut out seven times in their last 29 games, and that's eight on the entire year. This is a scary position to be in because they've been bad, and we talked about them historically reaching the old Washington Capitals team and shots against this year. They've moved on from that. Now they've moved on to being the worst <laughs> offense in history, possibly. It's a, it's a scary sight to think about. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, you look for the silver lining, and the team has definitely been playing better recently, so I'm hoping that it was kind of just the Carlisle effect where it relied heavily on more... I don't even know what his plan was, to be honest with you, because you'd think his would be more defensive-minded, but they bled shots as well, so it doesn't really make sense. But if you look at the Ducks, I mean, they're going to have to snap out at a bit at some point, because if you look at the team, there's only three guys who are shooting at or above what their normal shooting percentage is, and that's Nick Ritchie, uh, Daniel Sprong, and Jakob Silverberg. And none of them are exactly lighting it on fire. But when you look at the guys, you see the Getzloff, you see the Perry, you see those guys are all shooting below what they usually do. And then you look at somebody like Raquel, who's supposed to be one of the big guys on this team, and he's shooting at half of what he usually does. So at some point, he's going to turn it around. He's just going to need a couple games where he's lighting it up, and he'll hopefully get his confidence back, and we'll start seeing the 30-goal Raquel again. I mean, we hope so. That, that's that been the biggest disappointment on the offense for the Ducks this year is Ricard Raquel. Obviously, Andre Kasher going down with injury is tough. But it's funny, when you look at those guys who are shooting above their shooting percentage or right out around it, those, I guess, would be the three guys you could say this year that aren't really disappointing. Nick Ritchie's improved and been one of the most improved Ducks this year. Jakob Silverberg's about right where he normally is, and, and he's now leading the team in goals. And Daniel Sprong's been a welcome addition to the offense since coming over. Everybody else, you could say, is either like Adam Henrique having a regular season for them uh, in production-wise or is, is having a down year like Ricard Raquel or Corey Perry or even Ryan Getzlaff to some extent. So it, it you, know, you can equate that a bit to how bad the Ducks' offense has been this year and obviously missing Andre Kasher for so much of the year. Same goes for Corey Perry. But I, I think a lot of people are wondering, like, can this offense realistically get better next year? Because all you're adding to the lineup next year uh, is Andre Kasha, and then a lot of what ifs. You know, you add maybe a Maxime Comtois, and there's a lot of speculations across the board. People believe he could be a 20 goal scorer. I've heard people go as far as saying he could be a 40 goal scorer, which is a massive stretch. I mean, yeah. that's that's elite, elite territory. But you've got a, a full season of Max Jones, and the way he's played, he should probably have three or four goals right now, but he's just been a little bit unlucky. And then you're hoping that Ricard Raquel can get back up to at least 20, 25, 30 goals next year. So, you know, it looks like it will get a little bit better, but there's not a lot of concrete evidence that it's going to for sure get better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This isn't a team where you look at it and say, wow, we should be doing a ton better. When you look at this team, we're, I think, honestly, we kind of overachieved the last couple of years. I I think we just kind of, kind of, delay the inevitable in our decline just because we've been relying way too heavily on guys over the age of 30 and they're going to slow down at one point or another and they can only prop up the people around them so much before it starts to show and when you look at this team on the forward core specifically you're not really seeing too many game changers which isn't an indictment on the ducks at all it's more so a factor of where we've been drafting the last decade it's hard to find those guys and when you look at the ducks i mean i don't see a lot right there that's going to jump into your lineup and you immediately say well now we are game changers now we're going to go out there and play and score three four goals a game i see a lot of the same and it's going to rely on being inside the the system and the manager the uh the franchise here and kind of having people fill holes that maybe they weren't drafted to fill but now that's their role and it's it's really going to depend on what murray does in the offseason like i said it's it's there's a lot of question marks, and we're going to have to really just kind of ride this roller coaster and, with him and see what he has for us. Yeah, I think for me that's the one scary thing I have left for this team is what Murray's going to do in the offseason because he's spoken about wanting to go on a retool but really no concrete direction on how long he's expecting that to take. And, and that's a, a wary thought when you think you know he could go into the offseason and just sign a bunch of old free agents and expect the Ducks to be try and be competitive next year. Oh. Or he could just go in – 
and maybe fill some holes uh, that were left behind by some of the, the guys that didn't work out, like Gibbons, Schuster, Shen, and just you know mitigate this roster into another mediocre season, which would probably be best for the Ducks because you don't want to go under free agency and go and sign a bunch of guys' stop gaps to try and be good when they probably should be bad, get a top pick this year, and maybe get a top pick next year, or or surprise people. Like, the the Ducks next year are, are going to be a very interesting team because likely there's going to be a, a lot of young players getting a, a better look than they did this year. Uh, guys that weren't in the lineup, like come to on Lindstrom, and guys who were in and out of the lineup, like Sam Steele, that are going to come in and get a better look. Hopefully, like we said, Ricard Raquel gets back and Andre Kasha gets back to where he was and is 100% healthy. And there are some signs that things could get better. But the Ducks really need those game-breaking guys, like you said. And, and unfortunately, this year, the only way you get the game-breaking guys is you get Jack Hughes or Capocacco that are going to be able to compete with your team next year. Those are, in my opinion, unless another guy's surprise, those are the only two guys who can probably step right into the NHL next year. I mean, if you get a Dylan Cozens, if you get somebody else at the top of that draft, they'll be with your team probably in two or three years, which is fine if you look at the direction the Ducks are going in. But it doesn't say a lot for what their offense is going to do next year. And you've got another year of regression for Ryan Getzlaff, and we'll see what that does for him. And same with Corey Perry. And unfortunately for Ryan Kessler, if he's still around, there's there's hope in the young guys, then there's regression in the, the older guys, and it kind of puts you right back where this team probably will have similar offense next year, maybe plus 15 or 20 goals. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at it as we can fix this right away, you're kind of looking at it in a way that's going to be bound to fail if you look at the ducks overall i mean right now they've got nine forwards that are set to go into next season signed under contract that are kind of set to be there right now that leaves three holes on the forward line which that's not including terry jones sprong or you know the young guys so you're basically going to have three of those slots available for the young guys unless you move some people out and if you're going to move out a silverberg a shore or not a silverberg we just signed him but a shore or a henrique then you might be able to create some room for a more talented offensive player but right now it looks like the at least seven out of the top nine slots are filled and then i see a couple guys on the fourth line that we have signed so i mean if you're looking for magic to come out of what we've got then i i think you're bound to be disappointed whereas if we kind of stay patient with it and kind of trust the system in that we're going to retool as opposed to go the route of the, the detroit where you just try to stay as competitive as possible for as long as possible to the detriment of your franchise long term i think that 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 uh That'd be a mistake to make. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is This team is going to look pretty much the same next year. Is You've got all those top nine spots pretty much filled up except for a few, and you would have hoped those would go to the kids, especially the two that have been playing the most this year in Jones and Terry. Like it, it would make no sense to sit here and say that this team is going to be significantly better with the exact same team. Yes, if guys got back to what they were producing, if Ricard Raquel got back to a 30-goal score, if Getzlaff gets back to close to a point per game, then maybe things would get better. But those are really the only two guys that are performing well below what they normally do. Now, Ryan Kessler, he's been like this for a while. We expected it. Um, Jakob Silverberg's right on where we expect him to be. Nick Ritchie's above where we expect him to be. Andre Kasha getting injected back into the lineup, for sure, that's going to help. But he was here for most of the year, and the Ducks still couldn't really score that many goals. He was the only good player they really had out on the ice. So it it really isn't going to be a, a different look team this year. And I feel like Bob Murray does have to move somebody out because you can't just keep these kids in San Diego forever because this team not only is going to look pretty similar next year, you've got a lot of these guys like Henrik and Getzlaff, Perry, Kessler, Silverberg signed for three, four, five years. You know, you can't keep those guys in San Diego forever. So if it's not next year, you're going to have to move some of them at some point, probably before the Seattle expansion draft to get those kids in or if you pick the worst strategy, move some of the kids out to try and be competitive, which wouldn't be the best option for the Ducks, but something's got to happen. Something's got to give because eventually they've got to get the, get them into the lineup. Yeah, no, and it, it's got to give soon. I mean, if if you're going to even consider the notion of what you said last as far as moving the kids out, then you're really going to kind of handicap yourself if you don't make those moves soon because if you – Bring in someone like, say, Max Jones, who will have been in the AHL for, what, three years now after next season? So if you don't give him a shot and he doesn't pan out after to start next season, then you're really going to start seeing diminishing returns as far as value-wise. You're not going to be able to trade him at a high value because 
if he can't crack the the NHL on such a terrible team, then why am I going to pay you a premium to get him? And I, I think that that's basically what the Ducks are going to have to do. I think we've kind of hit crunch time at this point, and eventually, and I, by eventually, I mean before puck drop next season, I think we're going to have to see some major major changes with this franchise. And the biggest one of them all is probably going to be the coach, and it's a matter of who they bring in. And that could very realistically jumpstart this. If he can use Getzloff and the aging guys and use them to their strengths as opposed to using them as Swiss Army knives and having them do everything, then we might be able to see some boost that way i mean i'm not counting on it I'm, i don't think the ducks will be a playoff team next year but we could see at least some promise out of it yeah i think you you'll definitely or i guess i don't want to say definitely but you'll hopefully see a boost in a new coach and if you get the right fit and guys get back to producing where they are but i think even with that and if everything goes right and, and say max jones and troy terry both become 20 goal scorers raquel gets back to 30 Kasha becomes a 20 close to 30 goal scorer perry gets 20 henry gets 20 like if you get all these guys getting uh, well above what we expect them to the Ducks still will probably be a middle of the pack offense so then you would have to hope that the defense is top five or top 10 to even have a chance at making the playoffs it's very difficult to make it if you have both offense and defense and middle of the pack mediocre then at that point you would either be lucky and winning games really really close or just scraping into the playoffs which I would not be you know even if the Ducks made it in the final seed next year a wild card spot that wouldn't be a good season for Anaheim. You know, you look at the transition of this team, they're scraping in to probably have, have what happened uh, when they played San Jose and getting swept in the first round. It's it's not a good look. It's not the smart move at this point. And, you know, I hope a new coach comes in and does well. But next year, I, I wouldn't be disappointed if the Ducks missed the playoffs again to get another high pick or even a top 10 pick to add another forward to this this lineup that hopefully can go along with whatever top pick they get this year because they're, they're really desperate for a couple elite forward prospects because they've got all the primer in place of a lot of these young guys who can be second and third line guys. They just really need those Getzlaff and Perry replacements, if you want to call them that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we've kind of discounted John Gibson a bit. I mean, he's going to be a game changer. His contract kicks in next year, so he's probably going to be put under more of a microscope where he's not on a budget contract anymore but he can hide a lot but yeah overall I definitely don't want to see this team go for broke next season because I think you're like you hit the nail on the head you're going to kind of see them exposed in the playoffs we've seen it year in and year out where a team just kind of is scrappy and makes it in by the skin of their teeth and then they get in there and they they're in for a rude awakening the playoffs are a different beast and if you're not prepared to play you're going to be embarrassed just like last season and personally i'd rather end up with a even a one percent chance in the lottery than that four game embarrassment in san jose yeah i, I don't think anybody wants to relive that uh, we got a couple good young players to talk about that have been playing really well for the ducks but before we get to that there was two hits that took place over this week one hit by ricardo raquel and one hit by ian cole that i think we have to talk about and We'll start with Ricard Raquel's hit, and I, I don't know what you thought about that because a lot of people were on the fence with it. I, I think it was a little bit borderline. It was on Drake Kajula in the Chicago game, and it is from behind. It is a little bit late. He does end up hitting him in the numbers, gets a five in a game, no supplemental discipline for that one. How did, how did you feel the decision went? Do you think there should have been more? Or do you think it was right on? Uh, I, personally, I think it was pretty right on as far as the discipline that he got. I will not defend the hit in any way, shape, or form. It was definitely a dangerous hit and one that Raquel did, shouldn't have made. But at the same time, if you look at the play and kind of look at it without any bias towards or against, yeah, I can kind of see what Raquel was doing because if you look at Kajula, whenever he goes in to pick up the puck, he kind of shifts his body as if he's going to head back the other direction like turn left and start skating that way but whenever he actually touches the puck he shifts his body to the right a little bit and it exposes his numbers more which kind of makes it at that point he's he puts himself in a dangerous area for Raquel to hit Raquel should have absolutely let up on the hit but if he shifted his body to the left like it looked like he was going to do in slow motion then it would have been a clean hit and probably one that would go on a highlight reel instead it's one that we'd rather forget but yeah five minutes in a game I think is more than enough um he got it late in the first i believe or midway through the first yeah. so he uh he he served basically a full game out of it and i, I think that that's fair enough uh, he's not a repeat offender he doesn't really have anything on his credit that would say that he'd do that again or if it, there was ill intent so 
Yeah, I, I think you, you hit it perfectly when you said that talking about Drake Kajula kind of stopping and turning into the hit. And I think that's what, for me, makes the, the five in a game enough. I mean, if, if Kajula is just getting to the boards and he doesn't make that turn and Ricard Raquel recognizes that he's still behind him, he's going to hit him in the numbers and then pushes him in there, then and then there's some intent to it, then for sure I can see a suspension. But I think they're both kind of just skating to each other. The last second, Kajula puts himself in a dangerous position and then Ricardo Raquel just still, you know, can't really get out of the way at that point. It just runs into the back of him. And it's unfortunate that Kajula got hurt on the play, um, which I was worried a bit that it might lead to supplemental discipline because the guy got hurt. And I believe right. he still is day-to-day with a concussion, so that's unfortunate for him. But I think that was the right decision. But we go into the hit from last night where Ian Cole with a late knee-on-knee on Devin Shore – this one, I was a bit surprised that there was no hearing or anything or supplemental discipline after the fact because he also got five in a game uh, for what looked like just destroying Devin Shore's knee on that play. Um, and really didn't have to make the hit. Kind of you know leaves the, the trailing like out, which is never a good sign. That's usually one that you, you would call uh, get a hearing for the next day. A lot of Stars fans, I found out they really still love Devin Shore because they were more upset about the hit than, than Ducks fans were. But this is one I was surprised to, to not see today that he was getting a hearing or getting a suspension. Yeah, initially, whenever I first saw it, I was kind of on the side of it wasn't intent. There wasn't anything behind it. It more so was a Shore kind of took a stutter step in a way and it kind of pushed, froze him out of position. But the more I look at it and the more I watch it, it it's clear that i have no idea what the what was going on in ian cole's mind he kind of extends his knee out as if he's trying to make a shoulder check but he doesn't extend the shoulder out so i'm not i really don't know what was going on in his mind um i'm the way the 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 supplemental discipline has been done this season especially i'm not surprised that he didn't get it but at the same time he did get the five in a game so the only thing i can think of is they looked at that and said yeah that's sufficient enough um especially where anaheim came out ahead in the game so i that could play a part into it i'm not sure what the criteria is for that but overall definitely a dangerous hit and one that i'm not quite sure what he was thinking it's unfortunate that that ends up playing a role in their decision for supplemental discipline after the fact that yeah he missed most of the game because of five in a game and then also the ducks won so it's and and then i devin shore we don't know how long he's out for hopefully it's not long term but the the injury didn't get announced the next day either when they would be yeah. making this decision to give him a suspension or have a hearing with him or, or whatever just to just make any kind of discipline after the fact it, it doesn't look good because you know we've seen these types of plays, maybe not even as severe, that have gone with a suspension before. And Ian Cole isn't—I don't, I don't want to say he's a repeat offender like a goon, but this is a guy who's been known to make some of these hits before. Like yeah, he's not, Ricard, yeah, he's not Ricard Raquel where it doesn't happen at all. And you know, it, it's a tough position for him to be in because when I go back, like you said, and I look at the hit over and over again, you just sit there and wonder, like, what what was he doing? And you know, he then reacts after, like, oh, like what happened but it's like you kind of got to know like i feel like he was trying to make a hit got a little bit lazy about it left his leg out there and hit some and then i assume he probably thought people were going to come just destroy him after the fact so he's like well i didn't mean to like i'm sorry like i didn't see him but it it, i don't know man it it, it was a tough one like it, it it's a little bit borderline but i feel like there was enough intent there and enough just stupidity on his own part to try and make a hit at that point that he probably deserves at least one or two games, but uh, of course they missed it. This is the this is the Department of Player Safety we're talking about. Yeah, that that's one thing I can say about the Department of Player Safety is I'm not quite sure where they stand on kneeing because you don't really see too many suspensions for that. You see it occasionally, but I mean, just if you look back at the Ducks' history, um, specifically with Mark Giordano doing it to Fowler. Um, there was nothing brought up about that, and Fowler was out for an extended period of time, including heading into the playoffs. Um, and now we see it with uh, Shore. It's just like I, it seems like a gray area as far as what the their outlook on kneeing is. If it's if I don't know if they think it's harder to declare intent whenever they do that or what, but it, it's definitely a strange one. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's harder to determine if it was on purpose or not because there, there's two guys moving into each other. Unless a guy completely goes out of his way and like kicks his leg out and makes it obvious. Right. Because even even us saying he deserves a suspension or a supplemental discipline, we still are sitting here saying, well, I don't know if he 100% meant to do it. Right. And I think that's what they're looking at. But when you see like a headshot or a guy just completely jump on a guy, like that's a little bit more obvious. Or a lot of the stick swinging incidents we've seen, like Adam Lowry that just got suspended yeah. for swinging his stick. That's like the third in the last couple of weeks. So those are obvious to kind of see and judge intent. And I think kneeing uh, is a little bit more speculative. But let's get into the young guys we wanted to talk about. Some more positive things with the Ducks. Because we've been talking a lot about how they can't <laughs> score and about bad hits. So now we can move into Max Jones, who has been absolutely amazing since coming up for the Ducks and getting the call up. But somehow he hasn't scored. He's got no goals. But every game he has one or two plays where you you think he's going to score and it just doesn't happen. You know, the goalie makes a good save. He he can't finish the shot. I, I mean, the guy was so snake bitten. Like unlike any other player I've seen in a very long time for the Ducks, uh, I, I I don't know what what he has to do. He's doing pretty much everything. He he's just been so surprising in the sense we knew he was a big guy and he was fast, but he's got hands in tight as well. Where he's made a couple good moves, and not only that, he's been a, a playmaker. I mean, he set up some guys, and they just haven't finished either. So he's only got the one assist, but he probably should have a, about three or four goals and a couple assists added on to that. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at his game, I mean, I get shades of what Bobby Ryan used to do, where he'd find open space where there was no reason whatsoever that he should be able to find it. Obviously, Jones is a bigger body and plays more physically than Bobby did, but he that's what I get. That's what I kind of see in his game. He's sneaky. He's slick. He can get into the open areas, and he can find. He's got a really nice shot. He just can't find the back of the net, just like much of the Ducks roster right now. And to use the the hazy word here, the uh, the ketchup bottle theory, where once he gets that first one in, it, who knows what's going to come pouring out. That that's what it feels like, and that's what I hope. But I mean. Not like he's been generating offense for himself, which is what I love the most because yeah. he reminds me of that sense. And not many Ducks players can do it, but the one guy we all know and we, we think about at the top of our head is Andre Kasha. Is a yeah. guy that you can put anywhere on any line, and he's going going to go out there and make a couple things happen in a game. And any shift he gets, he's going to be full of energy, and he's going to try and make something happen. And Max Jones has been that. I mean, he's been up and down the lineup. He found a home with Henrik and Terry. Then that switched to Derek Grant and Terry. Last game, it was Kessler and Rowney. And even being on the fourth line, not getting the best chances, not playing with a, an elite center or just even a good center like Adam Henrik, he's going out there. And making things happen. He had a good tip in front of the net. That was a good chance. And then he made a toe drag and to the backhand in tight. And yes, it was on a guy with no stick, but he still ended up making a good move <laughs> to the backhand. And Grubauer makes a good save. Like it's it's one or two of these a game. And, and I feel so bad for the guy because you know he talked about it. He knows it's happening. He's gone through this at times in junior as well, which he talked about. But it, it's just it's unbelievable luck at this point because you know Andre Kasha went through a point like this yeah. as well where we're saying like, how is this guy not scoring when he first came back from injury then he scored and and then it was became consistent after that and he started to get you know really good chances every game and they're going to the back of the net so hopefully that's soon for Max Jones because I don't know how long he could go like this <laughs> without putting the puck in the back of the net but I want to know what you think his future production is like because just like Comtois that's kind of open-ended right now when a lot of people believe. I think, you know, based on his play so far, and yes, it's been a small sample size, people think maybe he could be a 20-goal scorer. Do you think he Do you think he has that? Do you think he has more to, to his, his wheelhouse, maybe a 30-goal guy? It's hard to speculate right now. Yeah, it's definitely hard to speculate. We've only seen him for a very short amount of time. What we've seen from him is incredibly encouraging. We've seen him make a lot of plays that nobody else on the Ducks is making right now. Um, the biggest question mark I have with him is going to be consistency, and more than that, it's going to be how the teams that we play react to him. Right now, we don't really have a lot of game footage on him, so whenever teams are scouting the Ducks and ready to play them, they don't really have a game plan in place for Max Jones. Um, It kind of reminds me back whenever we played Detroit in the playoffs, uh, I want to say 2013, back whenever uh, Emerson Edom was called up, and he was the the, kind of the savior of that series. He was a major, uh, major talking point. He was just making plays left and right, looked great making plays along the boards getting open space and he was uh, he was very impressive and then he never kind of lived up to it just because I think teams kind of found out what his game was and they kind of shut it down Max Jones I think has a lot more tools in his toolbox than Edom has but it's going to be how he reacts to that and we'll kind of I think we'll see his production kind of level out 
and we'll kind of see him somewhere probably in that 15 to 20 goal range would be my guess. Yeah, and I think the, the thing that Jones has going for him as well is not just the speed, but he's a big kid too. Uh, I mean, he's got the size, which is never a bad thing, and, and he's like Nick Ritchie in the sense, in the way he plays, going to the net, playing hard, but then he's got that creativity that Nick Ritchie doesn't have. He has the shot as well, um, and, and then he just has that playmaking ability, which I didn't really think he had, honestly. Look, you know, Watched a lot of him in junior, saw the goal-scoring ability, just saw the tough side of his game, but he was asked to play a different role for London than he seems yeah. to want to play in the NHL, where he was that agitator-type guy. But like you said, he's got all these tools in his toolbox. He can play any position, he can, or not any position, but any any type of role for your team. The one thing I, I now question is we're, we're still in that unlucky stage for him. But if this continues, right. do we start to wonder if it's a, a problem with finishing ability? Because, you know, there's a lot of guys who were unlucky and then they were consistency unlucky, consistently <laughs> unlucky. And then that turned to the fact that oh, they just couldn't finish. So. I don't think we're there yet, but I am still worried that that might be the case because he's getting all these great chances, but he just can't seem to put the puck in the back of the net. Yeah, no, that that's definitely a major concern. Um, personally, out of my opinion, I'd say Troy Terry is more the one that we got to look at for the finishing ability than yeah. Jones. But as far as Jones goes, I think what we're going to have to wait and see is right now nobody's playing well. Let's put it bluntly. No one's playing well as far as offensively outside of Silverberg. So once everyone else kind of starts picking it up and playing the way that they should be playing, if he still has that issue at that point, then that's when we can kind of raise the red flag. As of right now, I think it's more of a product of playing on a team that's devoid of offense than it is anything that he's not doing to finish yeah i i think so as long as he keeps playing well consistently that's still a plus side based on and how some of the guys have played in this lineup this year but another guy in the opposite position on defense since coming over in the trade from brandon montour brandon Gooley has been almost perfect pretty much and he's seen his ice time continue to rise every game especially since being put with Cam Fowler in the game against Vegas he played 24 minutes and he was second behind Cam Fowler was probably the best defenseman on the ice and the game against Colorado he played over 20 minutes again was just a, a big impact on the ice and I think I think that's different is Montour we notice him when he makes the big flashy plays when he right. goes end to end and, and makes a you know a cross ice pass or makes a move or he goes end to end and scores or he makes a, a nice rush up the ice that's when you noticed him with Brendan Gooley, you don't notice him until the end of the game when you look at all the stats together, and he was probably the best defenseman <laughs> on the ice. And, you know, that to me is what we've seen from Hampus Lindholm for so long, where, you know, yes, he'd have those games where he would light up the offense, the, the score sheet, and you would notice him or he'd make a really good play. But he would just do all these little smart, high hockey IQ plays that would eventually land him near the top in all categories for the Ducks. And Brendan Gooley, the last two games, has been second in expected goals for the Ducks. His, his advanced stats over the four games and yes it's a very small sample size but they're incredible i mean 56.6 percent in shot share 63 percent over in scoring chances for he's been on the ice for 48 scoring chances for 28 against at five on five high danger chances are 63 percent as well and then expected goals it's yes again we have to reiterate it's a small sample size but he's the only ducks defenseman well above 50 percent he's at 58.46 percent in expected goals for percentage magnan holds are the only ones barely above 50 percent everybody is is well south of that so it's been an amazing start for him which has really helped us transition pretty quickly from brandon montour because i didn't expect this yeah, absolutely. I Whenever I first heard we got Gooley, I was excited just from the little bit that I'd seen from him. And then I started watching film of him that night whenever we acquired him. And I really became excited just watching him play. And uh, since he's been on the Ducks, it's been I, he exceeded my expectations, which were kind of high as it was. But the thing that I've noticed about him is, like you said, he reminds me a lot of Lindholm and the things that you don't notice that he does. But I kind of made a note the first game because I didn't expect much of the team otherwise. So I kind of made it a point just to watch him. Yeah. And anytime I saw him on the ice, I just see him do things that you don't see our other defensemen doing. And when they do do it, they don't do it quite as well. You'll see him activate and he'll move up the ice and kind of get into this sneaky little open ice area where no one's looking at him and he'll receive the puck and then he'll have, either have a great scoring chance or have an open passing lane. And it, it's really something that you can't really 
quantify on the stat sheet and it might not show up all the time but whenever you kind of notice it and if you just sit there and watch him for a game you'll notice he does a lot of things that are really impressive and the biggest thing that I think that we've seen from him is we've seen him which I don't know if it's specifically him or it could be Cam Fowler's timidness from playing on the right side but we've seen Fowler kind of settle in and play a more thought a thoughtful game as opposed to a reactive game. We're seeing him kind of think his moves through and the chemistry between those two has made it where Gooley can make a play and then Fowler can kind of step back and recover or vice versa. And it's, it's definitely been nice. It's somebody that we haven't really seen Fowler kind of click with since I'd say Simone Dupre. Yeah, it's, it's similar in the sense. And so Simone Dupre was like a calming effect for Cam Fowler where Cam Fowler can kind of just, have some relief and just relax a little bit and kind of get more into what makes him successful on the ice and doesn't have to worry about playing with Brandon Montour and both getting caught up the ice. And I, I think that's good for Fowler. I honestly thought Manson was going to be that guy for him, but uh, obviously <laughs> the way that went this year, that, that didn't work out. But yeah, I mean, for Brandon Gooley, the, the broadcast brought up a package, uh, I think in the, after the second period last night, where they just looked at some of the plays he made, just the little plays, just clean zone exits, clean zone entries, good rushes up the ice, just little plays that you don't notice, but when they put them all together in a highlight package, you're like, wow, like this is what this guy is doing all game. Like He's just making these smart plays, and they're not the the super risky plays, but they all add up to a great night, and it eventually helps the team win, win the game. Like This is... These are the the guys you want in your lineup, and yes, it would be nice to have like an Eric Carlson or Brent Burns, a guy who just generates offense and gets fifty, sixty points. But Brandon Montour was never going to be that guy, no. and I think that's why they moved on from him because that's what he was supposed to be. They were hoping he was going to be the offensive defenseman, a forty, fifty point guy who was they could just rely on for offense, and then they would have Lindholm and Manson and Fowler to do all the defensive work. Well, I think that went south for Montour. Then they realized I think that Fowler wasn't going to be that defensive stalwart that they maybe thought he was going to be people were comparing him to scott niedemar when he first came in and uh, yes he's got the speed and can flash the offensive ability but cam fowler is is suspect on defense a lot of the times he his awareness is is a big problem but then you put him with this kid and i mean he's played two games this year 18 last year i I, and i like you i watched film on him i thought he was going to be good eventually but this kid steps out of the ahl this year comes in and looks probably the best, the Ducks' best defenseman. And that's with a team who has put Lindholm with Manson back together, which is notoriously one of the best pairings in the league. And now he's made Cam Fowler look a lot better. And that seemed to work together, which I don't know if it's going to work long-term because it's two lefties playing on the same pair. But either right. way, I mean, this kid is going to be a very good player. The question now becomes, how good can he be? Because I think coming over, his ceiling was supposed to be a 3-4, which he basically looks like right now. And yes, again, yeah. it's a small sample size, but now we've got people, and again, this is hype, and it, this always happens with players, happens with prospects a lot, especially Comtois when he first was lighting it up at the beginning of the year. People thought he was going to be a top six player for the rest of the year, uh, but he was at an unsustainable shooting percentage, and eventually was going to fall back to earth. So people are now thinking that Brandon Gooley could be a top two defenseman <laughs> in this league. I mean, if he keeps playing like this, for sure, but it's going to be hard to keep up this pace. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to definitely temper the expectations on it for the time being, enjoy what he's bringing. But at the same time, you have to kind of look at it from him. You're pro- He's probably playing with a major chip on his shoulder after basically being told, we're, you're not as good as these other guys we brought in in Buffalo. So we're going to trade you and we're going to have to trade a first round pick with you just to get somebody good. So when you look at it like that, he's probably coming in with a major chip on his shoulder, similar to what we saw with Daniel Sprong, where he came in and wanted to prove the team that traded him. Hey, I've got more than what you think. And Sprong kind of leveled off a bit. He's still very good. He's still putting up major shots. But Gooley, I think, might fall into that same category unless he is for real. And I I wouldn't discount the ability that he's real because he has the skating ability, which is the one thing you can't teach, really. Um, You can get better at it, but he has that natural stride where if you just watch him, he can get to the areas that other players can't and he does it and it doesn't even look like he's working hard similar to like you said with Lindholm those two just when you watch them skate it it doesn't look like they're exerting any energy to do it it just seems like they're just kind of walking on water and I definitely think that conservatively a 3-4 defenseman would be probably the right kind of fit for him probably in the four slot um i think he'll do better with somebody who can kind of facilitate his game and not be the one that you build a line around um whereas with 
kind of like a Lindholm, who I consider a number one. You put Manson with him to make Manson better. I think they are going to put Gooley with someone to make Gooley better. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, the one thing that I'm, I'm impressed about as well, and I mean, I guess I'm impressed with everything with Gooley so far, but the, the one thing I'm a bit surprised is, you know, the speed was the thing everybody talked about with him, you know, having the sixth fastest time in AHL All-Star Game history for the fastest skater competition. That was something that got thrown around right away when he came over. And just the fact that he's always been a fast skater, and that's the hallmark of his game. But we, we said the same thing about Cam Fowler and Brandon Montour. The difference is, you know, Montour and Fowler, their speed is always top-end speed. That's when you notice it. Right. They're, they're making a, a rush up the end at, at top speed, or they're trying to get back to cover defensively at top speed. The difference with Brendan Gooley is he's not always at top speed. He knows when to utilize his speed correctly, and he doesn't have to be gunning it up the ice. He can do that, and I think that is more deceptive than, you know, everybody knows Cam Fowler's fast. So they, they know to kind of sit back if he's got the puck and is making a rush up the ice. Nope, I don't think, and this is obviously because a lot of people haven't seen him, but if you're a fast defenseman or a fast player and you're not always going at high speed and then you get beside a guy and you just turn it on and go, a lot of times you're going to get by him because he doesn't know you're going to do that. <laughs> He's, they're not used to seeing you all game you know, go full speed and, and, and blow by a guy. So that's going to be great for him, that deceptive speed. And it, it's it's already you know ridiculous at this point that he's utilizing his speed at such a high level such a you know again it goes back to his hockey iq just making smart plays and and being able to recognize when to do that you know we we have to remember this guy's 21 and he's already doing all of this making smart plays and i think i've only seen him make really two mistakes there was the there was a turnover he made i think in his second game where it led to a three-on-two that Miller had to make a good save. And then Vegas, he got caught a little bit. Alex Tuck was cherry-picking behind him and ended up scoring on John Gibson. But they are not huge mistakes. They're not glaring turnovers. They're little mistakes. And when you take that into account that like everything else has been good for this guy, that's extremely impressive for such a young defenseman who has a handful of games in the NHL. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you look at any defenseman, if you watch them all game, if defensemen didn't make mistakes, goalies would have an easy job. And that's just simply not the case. If you watch Eric Carlson, you'll probably be able to pick out five or six times. You're like, ooh, what were you thinking there? But he makes up for it with that nice you know, the smooth entry into the zone and then rips it home. So I think Gooley can make that same kind of kind of argument where he might make a mistake every once in a while he's not perfect but yeah he's made very very minimal mistakes and the ones that he has made haven't really particularly cost the team more than what he's given them so I I definitely think that that's a positive for him and from what I've seen I'm very impressed with him so far I definitely want to see more of him with Fowler um, because uh, that could very well change the course of this team if Fowler is comfortable playing that right side and then you have Gibbs or you have a uh, Lindholm Manson and then Gooley and Fowler you could have your first legitimate top four that actually meshes well together whereas Mans- or Montour always seemed like the odd man out he never had a pairing that was he was particularly comfortable with the only time he didn't look you know out of place was with Lindholm but then you look at what Lindholm and Manson was and you're kind of taking away from Lindholm and you're taking away from Manson to make Montour look better yeah, I think for a time last year, Fowler and, and Montour looked good together. The problem is they, they both get caught up the ice, so they'll look good for most of the game. And then you'll get a play where they both just rush up the ice, get caught, yeah. and it leads to a goal. And, you know, yes, it's nice to look good for most of the game and generate offense, but if you're making mistakes like that every <laughs> game or every other game that's leading to a goal, that yep. becomes a problem. And I think that's why they would never put back together this year is, you know, that was a talking point for a lot of people. Obviously, it was Lindholm and Manson were together, which was a big problem, but then... Fowler and Montreux weren't together. Well, yes, they played good, but the problem was they were making mistakes that led to goals. And I think if Gooley and Fowler can get something going like they have been so far, that's going to be uh, invaluable to the Ducks because they don't really have anybody else right now. Like Josh Mahura might come up next year. Uh, Jakob Larson is up and down with the Ducks team. He's skating with them right now. I don't know if he's going to play. And Jacob Magna and Carbidian Holzer aren't long-term solutions for that bottom pairing. But Either way, San Diego going into the playoffs is gonna gonna get a couple impressive players in, in Troy Terry, Max Jones, Brandon Gooley. Uh, they're gonna get some high profile additions going right into the playoffs because you know they're they're looking like a dangerous team all season. But when you add guys like that who are impressing in the NHL, it's gonna be huge for them. I, I mean, they're gonna have Jacob Larson, they're gonna have Josh Mahura, uh, Jacob Magna, and Brandon Gooley all on the back end for them, and Andy Walensky as well. Like these are guys who probably could cut it in the NHL that are going to be playing with San Diego. 
Yeah, no, uh, definitely going to be fun time to watch San Diego if you have any chance to do so. I definitely think that they are going to be probably one of the more enjoyable teams to watch, even if they can't make it long playoff run. The system that they play is a lot more enjoyable to watch, and when they're getting the NHL caliber players back to play with, it's going to be quite a uh, quite a show, I think. Yeah, and, and speaking of one guy who has been just getting back with San Diego and now made his return to the Ducks last night, a long-awaited return for a lot of people, Kevin Waugh finally back in the lineup after sustaining a long-term injury. Uh, nice to see him back, and he's given a chance to improve right off the bat or to, to prove himself right off the bat playing with Ryan Gutzlaff and Corey Perry last night. Didn't look out of place, had a pretty good night. Didn't you know step off the board for me and really show me that uh, he – deserves to be on the top line but I think if you got a guy coming back that's been out for a long time why not give him the best opportunity to succeed when you can have a guy like Max Jones go down to the fourth line and you know he's at least going to play well down there yeah someone who's been as injured as much as Kevin Watts nice to see him get a chance to go out there and play um and I think, like you said, it's definitely good to see him play with the top line just to see how he does there. And I think it's more than anything kind of what we expect from a team that's coached by Bob Murray in that what we're seeing is more of a talent evaluation than anything else. Um, Because Kevin Watt is a UFA at the end of this year, if I remember correctly. And if that's the case, then you kind of have to see what you've got. If he is somebody who's worth keeping, then you want to see what you've got before you commit to him long term or if you give him a bridge deal or anything over a million dollars you're kind of you're you need to know whether he's going to cut it in the nhl or if you're just kind of wasting cap space yeah and he wasn't the only guy that returned john uh, ryan getzlaff returned last night after being out for about four or five games with an injury and then john gibson obviously returned two games ago against vegas made his second game back tonight i mean you're getting your best forward arguably back in the lineup and then getting your best player back in the lineup in john gibson this doesn't really help the Ducks tank at this point. Like, <laughs> Can they actually tank with Ryan Getzlaff and John Gibson in the lineup? Because they've been looking good over the last few games, even without Ryan Getzlaff. But you know, the way John Gibson's been playing this year, he can just win you games on his own. It's going to make it hard to tank when you've got some of these teams like the Kings just losing 10 in a row. I think they finally just snapped that the other day. Uh, you've had Ottawa, who lost like seven in a row. They they just won and, and broke that. But you've got like a lot of these teams who are just really bad and are going to continue to be really bad. And you have the Ducks that we're hoping they get a top five pick, but you get two of your best players back. Yeah, it, it, uh, as much as I'm on Team Tank, I think it's going to be a rough go to try to tank here. Um, I actually did the math yesterday while I was watching the game and the Ducks have 16 games left after the game yesterday. Nine of those are against non-playoff teams currently and five of them are against either the Canucks, the Kings, or the Oilers. So they've got a lot of four-point games coming up in that they're playing teams who are equally as bad as the Ducks, but they are fighting for position with. So with even without Getzloff and Gibson, it's going to be hard to lose to those teams and with them back it's going to be it's going to be a massive chore yeah it's going to be difficult i mean it's nice to see them play well but i think a lot of people last night were like oh yeah they're playing well but like can colorado just score here and win this <laughs> like can they just kind of get back into this because we're you know we're kind of on a roll here losing five in a row and, and can maybe <laughs> get a, a, a higher pick here i mean you never want to root for the team to lose but this year, the way they're going, like we know they're not going to make the playoffs, so there really is no benefit to them winning other than just us not, you know, dying at the end of the night because they've lost seven in a row. Like it's, it's, it's a difficult situation uh, to be in. But you know, we look forward at the next couple games this week. They got a back-to-back: Arizona on Tuesday, St. Louis on Wednesday, Montreal on Friday, and then LA on Sunday. So we got four games this week. We'll start with Arizona quickly. Fighting for a playoff spot, surprisingly. Uh, do you think the Ducks have a shot in this game? Because it is in Arizona. It's a, a quick break from the homestand to go on the road for one game before they come back for four. Um, Arizona's been on a roll, so it could be a tough one. Yeah, Arizona's 8-2 and two in their last 10. They are a competitive team that works some magic, even despite major injuries to their lineup. Um, I think that the Ducks have a chance just because you never know which side of Arizona you're going to get. They could put up 15 goals on you. They could put up no goals and maybe score a couple on their own net but it's very possible that this could be a back and forth game it seems like every game between the ducks and the coyotes is fairly competitive 
Yeah, and then you go right into another team who's also been hot, and, and they were they had one loss in regulation. St. Louis did in February. They went twelve one and one in the month of February. They've lost their first two games in March, but let's not talk about that. The last <laughs> uh, the last time they played the Ducks, obviously remember, was right before the break. They ended up beating Anaheim five to one. Completely different look Blues team, I think, since the Ducks played them. The, the Blues were just starting to get on the roll. They really got on a roll with that win against the Ducks, went into the break, and then came out just red hot. It's going to be another tough game because they, they have some goaltending now with Jordan Bennington. It's going to be a second of a back-to-back for the Ducks, so likely, um, I would assume, John Gibson probably gets the start against Arizona, but we don't really know. So either John Gibson or Ryan Miller will be in there, but this is going to be a tired team that has notoriously struggled on back-to-backs this year. They just haven't looked up to the task the day after and uh you know they're, they're not playing an easy team the night before Arizona's gonna be a really hard game on the road then you're gonna come back and get ready for a game at home against St. Louis so it, it's gonna be tough to come out with points in both of these yeah St. Louis is definitely a hot team and I can kind of forgive them losing their first two games in March because they played I believe they played Dallas and Carolina both of which are fighting for playoff spots and if I remember correctly Carolina was I I think they were like three points out of the playoffs when they played them so it was kind of a do or die game for them in such a tight conference in the east where everyone well not everyone but the five teams that are there separated between a point and two points so that makes sense and then Dallas is just trying to keep separation between them and Arizona so it, it definitely is a it's going to be a tough game St. Louis is a very tough team they've gotten better as the season went along especially since they made their own coaching change and i think that they're going to come out and try to make a statement um when they play the ducks that's their next game is against us so they have a couple days off between games and we'll be playing a back-to-back so that's definitely not favorable for us no and and they head back home to play the montreal Canadiens, who have been one of the surprises of the league this year the fact that they're still holding on to one of the wild card spots right now they're eighth in the eastern conference uh Carey Price slowly putting together a pretty good season for Montreal, especially as of late, had just a ridiculous stretch of games where he's played a lot better. And then Max Domi coming over from Arizona has just put together a career year for himself. 22 goals where he had nine last year, and he has 59 points, which blows past his career high. Montreal, normally, if you looked at this at the beginning of the year, would have said, oh, this would be an easy game. Not so much anymore. They look like a, a completely different team. Yeah, getting Carey Price back to his form is key to that team making any success similar to Gibson. That that team will go as far as Carey Price drags them. And uh, getting someone like a Max Domi, who's definitely lighting it up, and then you've got the emergence of Druin, who's continued to improve, um, I think you're definitely going to be looking at a difficult game there. And if uh, Montreal lost their last game, so they're probably going to look out and once again come in to make a statement. They are currently, let me see here, two points ahead of Columbus for the last playoff spot. And you know Columbus is going to be working hard with the trades they made at the deadline. Yeah, and, and the the only lucky thing, I think, for the Ducks going into that game is Montreal plays San Jose the night before, so you would assume Price would go against San Jose. So the Ducks oh, will, yeah. will get Niemi, who has not been good this year, sub-900 save percentage, so that could be uh, a bonus for the Ducks not having to go against Carey Price the way he's playing. And then you finish off the week in the freeway face-off, which is nothing like it used to be because it's <laughs> going to be both, fan, uh, both fans of both teams hoping that their team loses in regulation because it means falling further below into the Western <laughs> Conference standards and closer to a top pick. It, normally, we're used to this game meaning something in the top end of the standings where they're fighting for a Pacific Division title or fighting to get into a, a second or third in the Pacific instead of the wild card. Now, it's it's. I don't think we've ever seen this with both of these teams where both of them are so bad that you know LA is three points behind Anaheim for bottom of the Western Conference or yeah, Anaheim is three points above uh, L.A., and L.A. has the game in hand. So if they win their next game, then they'll only be one point behind the Ducks. And just uh, a unique position to be in where I don't think any Ducks fan has ever gone into a game and probably wanted the Ducks to lose. Um, I still don't want the Ducks to lose to the Kings, but it, it's a conflicting principle to be in this year with them being so close in the standings. Yeah, if uh, I believe they said they have three games coming up against the Kings, so it's going to be quite in quite a strange series but yeah it's going to be a difficult game to lose i mean the kings are probably the one team that you can say is worse than the ducks in the west and they don't have a john gibson they have a jonathan quick who i can't even remember is he's still injured but um you 
you're going to be looking at a team that might end up with a couple uh, late scratches or injuries to key players who just happen to be sick that day or something like that. You want to hold those players out as much as you can to kind of hope and help yourself get that draft pick. I mean, yeah, the, the Ducks are beneficiaries of another back-to-back where L.A. plays Arizona the night before. And uh, at this point, you'd almost rather play Jonathan Quick the way he's been playing this year. He, surprising enough, he's got a sub-900 save percentage in 35 games. He's 892 and a 3.3 goals against average. It's just not been a good year for Quick after coming back from that injury. And, you know, you look at the last four games for him, six goals against, six goals against, four goals against, and three goals against against Chicago. Uh, and then you've got... Uh, Jack Campbell, who's actually having a pretty good, uh, pretty solid year for the Kings. So you'd almost rather Campbell go against uh, Arizona to face and face Jonathan Quick, which you would never ever say that in the past. But if you're wanting to try and lose that game, uh, then you, you kind of hope that Jack Campbell's in there instead of Jonathan Quick. If you want to win, then you hope Jonathan Quick's in there and Jack Campbell plays against the Arizona Coyotes. But It'll be an interesting week for the Ducks. It'll be uh, four games that we get to cover next time we hit this podcast, and they could be further down in the standings. They could put together a couple strong games and be higher up in the standings. Depending on where you, you stand this year, that could be a good thing. If you, if you lose all four, uh, you could want them <laughs> to win uh, all four. To, for me, I just hope they play well. If they lose, they lose. If they win, they win. I just want to see them play good hockey like they've been playing over the last three games. Absolutely. As long as this game that doesn't put me to sleep, I will. Uh, I'll enjoy it. I definitely, kind of hoping for the the higher draft pick. But if they want to come out and play and prove me wrong, and I have more power to them. Yeah, uh, we all hope for the higher draft pick. So if they play well and lose, like they did against Chicago and Vegas, I'm completely fine with that. That's uh, that's the way to go for me. <laughs> but that's gonna do it for this uh, for this edition of the Pucks or Feather podcast. We will be back next monday with a, another episode so of course if you're hearing this on tuesday well we missed it again we dropped the ball again so this is the third week that it's coming out on a tuesday we had excuses the last week at least <laughs> it was the break and the all-star game and then last time it was the trade deadline so hopefully you're hearing this on monday if not you hear it on tuesday we will for sure be out the next episode on monday thanks again to pucks or feather staff writer jonathan maxfield for coming on and covering for my two co-hosts who didn't want to show up today so uh, hopefully we can have you on again because this was great thank you all right talk to you later guys